Great to be with you, everybody. If you've got a Bible, I'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to get straight in. This is the penultimate week of our series called Disciple. And we're going to read from verse 1. And this is what it says. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, and whatever is noble, and whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I want to speak today on the subject of leadership. Now, I know in a room like this, as soon as I say that word, a whole bunch of us in the room are basically effectively going to vote out of the message. Uh, that might be for a whole bunch of reasons. One is you may have been, if you like, asked to lead something in the past. Maybe you felt slightly coerced into it. It didn't go so well. <clears throat> and all that happens, it proved the point to you that you're not a leader. And it's like, please don't ask me to do that again. Others of us in the room, we vote out on this subject because maybe when we were growing up, we were told again and again that we were going to amount to very little. And that word or those phrases have effectively defined us and our aspirations and our life to this point. So I want to just ask you, if you're in the kind of voting out group, and I'm not talking about Brexit, I'm going to ask you for the course of this message to remain, okay? And the reason I'm asking you to remain is because I believe the subject of leadership is applicable and relevant to everyone in the room. Now, John Maxwell, who's a well-known writer when it comes to leadership, defines leadership in one word, and that word is the word influence. So we may operate in different places, different responsibilities. The reach of our leadership and influence may be very different. Some of us will have particular leadership gifts. But I believe every one of us has the ability and the call on our lives to influence. Now, I believe that for two main reasons. First of all, this. I think the responsibility to influence others through our life is written into the DNA of every human being. You read the, the creation stories in Genesis. As soon as God creates man and woman, what does he do? He gives them jobs and roles and responsibilities beyond themselves. So Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increasing number fill the earth and subdue it. Now, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, right from the beginning, God invests into man and woman responsibility to cultivate, to care, a greater purpose, in other words, than just themselves. Now, as an aside, that is one of the reasons why the Western world, often people are so dissatisfied with their lives, because we might be so materially rich, you know, in terms of compared to the rest of the world, but we live with values of materialism and self-gratification. In other words, 
the aim of my life is to get everything I can get, but actually we were made to live to give. That's why, and that's so it doesn't work. We get all this stuff, but it doesn't fill, fulfill us because we were made in our very DNA for a purpose greater than ourselves, to cultivate, to rule, to give, to serve, and to have dominion over creation, to live beyond ourselves, in other words. That's the call on everybody. Second of all this, I think this is relevant to all of us because I believe God is able to do more than we realize. Ephesians 3.20 says this, that God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That's who he is. So that's who we are, we're called, and who he is, he's able to do more than we realize or even can picture in our brains. Now, if I was to boil down 20 years of learning in pastoral ministry, and I've worked for this church for 20 years, I know it looks like I've worked here for 40 years, but it's only 20 years. If I was to boil it all down to one main thing I've learned, it's this, that God has invested more in us and wants to do more through us than most of us ever realize. That's what I've learned. Most often when I meet people, it's like, do you realize there is more in you? God wants to do more in you. I believe that he's invested more gifting, more potential than we understand. And therefore, many of us, maybe all of us, but many of us live well within the possibilities of what he created us for. We are, as C.S. Lewis uh, quotes in one of his books, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think that's very true of many, of maybe all of us in the room. Certainly me. Now, what if today we all agreed that our default response, rather than being, I couldn't do that, that would never work, why don't we replace that with this phrase, the phrase being, why not? Why not? Let me give you a little illustration from my life. Okay? Before I worked for the church, I was a musician. I played a lot of music, made very little money. Okay? And uh, Steve likes to tell the story that he plucked me from a boy band. I'm not, I'm not sure that's entirely fair myself. Anyway, a number of routes I ended up working to come and help him. I ended up working for the church. Okay? And as I, when I began, one of the things that Steve asked me to do is I led the worship team and as soon as I started leading the worship team, I started to get prophetic words from people about songwriting. Now, I had not been much of a songwriter up until that point. In fact, I'd worked with someone in a band who was a fantastic songwriter. And I think through that experience, I had decided that basically that wasn't me and I couldn't do it. So I began to lead the worship team. I started to get prophetic words. I started to get prophetic words from really prophetic people. Yeah? So um, thank you if that was you. But there, I had significant words coming to me. But actually, although I appreciated them and I was glad to have them, part of me found that they became more of a burden than an encouragement because I had more prophetic words than I did have songs. <laughs> so I started to feel like the pressure and I was letting people down. That's what I felt like. And nothing was coming and I couldn't do it. And eventually what happened was we gathered some of the musicians and some of the people who I knew also wanted to write songs because I felt like if I did this, maybe that would give them permission to do this and we would open the gates, as it were. And we got together and we talked about what we felt, what we felt the issue was, what we were going to do about it critically. And we began to write and things started to open up and we are still writing. And we eventually, we ended on this phrase, why not? Why not? Why not us? 
Why not this set of musicians? Why not? Why not? Why can't we do this in our church? What's so magical about that context? Nothing. Why not? So here's the question I want to ask you today. What is the area of your life that maybe, maybe you have dreamt a little bit? Maybe you felt the Holy Spirit whisper to you about that there is something he wants you to do or there's more for you in, something where you maybe can initiate something new, where an area that you're gifted in where honest and discerning people around you have said you're good at that. They've, they've said to you, you know, you're really good at that. You should do a bit more of that. And you've, you've sensed God's whisper and you've dreamt of stepping out and using the gift and doing more and initiating something new. But for whatever reason, you've said to God, I can't do that. It's not me. What's the area? Now, if you're writing notes, I want you to write the phrase, why not? If you're not writing notes, why not? Okay? So write notes. If you haven't got a notebook, grab a pen. If you haven't got a pen, get your hand. Write the phrase on your hand right now, why not? If you don't have a hand, grab the hand of the person next to you. Write the phrase, why not, on their hand. If you have a phone, get your phone out right now. You have permission. Send yourself an email or a text saying, why not? Because I bet you there are things that God has called you to or whispered to you about that for whatever reason you've let them die or you have just been defined by other things in your life where you thought, I can't do that, but I bet you, you could. Write it down. Why not? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not into kind of wishful thinking. There are some areas of your life that I'm never going to be very good at and neither are you. It has to be an area where there's gifting and there's people around you who said, you're good at that. I'm terrible at drawing. Okay, my dad is the only other person worse than the planet who's worse at drawing than me. I'm never going to be an illustrator as much as I dream. I'm not into the kind of reality TV mantra that if you chase your dreams and believe it for long enough, it will happen. That's a load of nonsense. But I do believe and I am into obedience. And if God has spoken to you and put gifting in you that other people are recognizing, I bet you there's something of a dream in there somewhere and God is calling you to do more. What is it that he is calling you to have more influence in and to do more and serve more people through. Now, if the call of influence is true for all of us, which I'm suggesting it is to different degrees, I want to talk about in the rest of this talk, where does influence, where does leadership begin? Where does it get birthed? Because I think we often think of leadership, if you like, in the externals. We think of titles, platforms, Twitter followers, TED Talks. We think of all the trappings of leadership. But really, that's not the definition of leadership at all, because leadership doesn't start there. It really starts right here at home in terms of who I am. And that is why in Philippians 4, when Paul writes this passage, he finishes the passage that we just read by saying, follow me and be like me. Whatever you've learned, received, heard, or seen in me, put it into practice. 1 Corinthians 4, he says, imitate me. In other words, leadership is not your title is who you are, and it is about living your life in such a way that someone else wants to follow you. It is being someone worth following. Now, some of you in the room will know that my year, my family's year, started in a really hard way. We lost my mom. It's really tough. Obviously very sad. It's been painful and difficult. There have been some very encouraging moments in it as well. My mum wasn't the CEO of a big company, and if she was, she kept it pretty hidden and didn't show me the money, okay? She wasn't a well-known church leader. She didn't write books. 
She was the daughter of a Methodist minister and she was a chiropodist, which meant she was a foot doctor, which when I was a kid we all thought was a bit gross. Not being a Methodist, being a foot doctor. Just in case any of the Methodists out there thinking, he just said being a Methodist is gross. That's not what I said. Okay. She was a foot doctor who's a Christian who got filled with the Spirit. And a Thanksgiving service, we just had that experience where just loads of people showed up. Loads of people came to talk to us about what she'd been like and the influence they'd had on her life. People who had been in their house, been around for meals, been in their small group, been on holiday with them, helped spend some of my inheritance on holiday with them. (laughs) People my parents had befriended, prayed with, looked out for. Because leadership really, in the end, is about living a life worth following. That's what leadership is. And it begins with this one main thing. It begins foundationally this. The first step of living a life of influence begins with accepting the truth that I am responsible for my own life. Now, that might sound very obvious. You think, well, I'm an adult. I get myself up in the morning. I can brush my teeth. I can even get myself dressed. Well done, okay? What I'm trying to say in that sentence is, that I am responsible and you are responsible for the choices that we make which define our lives and define where our lives end up and therefore the kind of influence we have. And I say it because whilst I believe that Genesis 1 and 2 absolutely teaches us that we are called to a life to influence others for good around us and have some areas of responsibility, I also believe that Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, teaches us and shows us that one of the products of sin is a tendency towards abdicating responsibility rather than taking it. So we're called to have a life of influence, but we're broken people who tend sometimes towards abdicating. God creates men and women, puts them in the garden, tells them not to eat of the fruit. God goes off for a while. Eve gets, the serpent comes along. Eve eats, gives it to Adam. Adam eats, and God comes walking, looking for them. And what does Adam do as soon as he hears God calling? First thing he does... He hides. He hides. So he covers up. He wants to pretend that he hasn't done what he's just done. So he hides. I found this story a little while ago. And the story is of a kid whose mum has just started going to a new church. And the pastor has come around to visit. And they're having a cup of tea in the living room. And the kid has been in the garage and runs into the living room holding a dead rat, doesn't see the pastor, and then tells his mum this. Mum, you'll never believe it. But I was out behind the garage. There was this rat just running around. So I picked up a rock and I threw it and I hit the rat and it just dropped there. So I threw another rock at it and then I kicked it and then I stomped on it up and down. Then I picked up the rat and I threw it against the garage as hard as I could and then I threw it again. And at this point, he looks up, sees the pastor and he knows if looks could kill, he'd be a dead man. So he holds the rat up by the tail and says in a very pious voice, and then the dear Lord called him home. See, that's what we do, right? We do stuff, we live our life a certain way, and then we want to cover it up as if we didn't do it. And that's exactly what Adam does. When God finds him, he calls Adam out straight. He says to Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree? I commanded you. And then Adam says these famous words in, one, in Genesis three twelve. The man said this, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then Eve doesn't exactly cover herself in glory because God says, well, what about you, Eve? And she says, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. 
In other words, right from the very beginning, sin comes. He doesn't go, he doesn't own up, he doesn't put his hand up and say, I blew it. What he does is, God, this woman who you put in the garden, and by the way, she was your idea. Everything was fine before she turned up. She gave me the fruit and convinced me and I ate it. And he goes, well, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. And so enters into the world blame, projection, and a tendency towards not accepting responsibility for our own lives and choices. And this is how it plays out in our lives. Okay? We tend towards wishful thinking about the things which are not as they should be, hoping that we will drift into change. So we wish and hope things will change, but we never do anything about the change. And therefore, in one year's time, two years' time, five years' time, ten years' time, guess what? Nothing has changed and we are in exactly the same place as we were previously. For example, we may struggle with how to handle money. And some of us, for good reason, because we were never modeled it properly, by the way, so there might be very good reasons for this. But let's say we really struggle. We constantly spend more than we actually have. We wish we could change it, but we have never taken any steps to address it. We've never sat down with anyone. We've never found someone who's really good with money. We've never owned up to where we are, even to ourselves, and we hope it will get better, and it never does. Or we'd like to learn a new skill. I've lost count. A number of people will say to me, oh, I'd really love to learn an instrument, okay? We love to learn an instrument. We love music, but we never find a teacher, never pay for lessons, never practice, periodically wish we did, and surprise, surprise, we never learn how to play. We don't ever, ever just drift into good habits, folks. The first start of leadership, right at the heart of leadership, if I put it that way, of influencing others is leading myself, and right at the heart of leading myself is accepting the truth that I am responsible for the life and the choices which I make which define my life. That's where it's birthed. Now, that is not to say that some of us have had a really rough start. We've been damaged by things people have said to us or the upbringing we have. There have been circumstances which have made it really tough for us. That is probably true for many of us in this room. But the truth remains, to get from here to there, I have to put my hand up and go, now I am responsible for the choices I make. No one else is holding a gun to my head, making me make these choices now. Now I have to take responsibility. I'm responsible, and so are you. So I have to begin by going, this is the truth. I'm responsible. That leads me to the second thing I have to do. I have to own up when things are not as they should be. When things are wrong, or when things are broken, or I haven't taken responsibility, or maybe where I'm sinning, I have to own up up and say, yeah, I'm responsible for that. That's right at the heart of being a Christian, isn't it? When you become a Christian, you're saying to God, I acknowledge that I've lived myself a life away from you in rebellion on your planet, and I am owning up. I'm repenting for the life I've lived, and I'm saying, now I want to follow you. I have to own up. I have to accept I'm responsible, and now I own up where things are not okay. King David is a good example of somebody who had to do this. In the Old Testament, King David is probably the greatest king of Israel. He had an incredible rise to power. He does incredible things. And then at the peak of his power, he makes the most hideous mistake. It says when he should have been at war, he doesn't go to war. That's one of the issues. He doesn't do what he should have been doing. Right? He stays at home, and he sees this woman that he's attracted to bathing. What she's doing bathing on the rooftops, I don't know. 
You wouldn't do it in Catford in March when it's snowing. But anyway, there she is. She's bathing. And he sees her and decides, I want her, gets her, brought to his palace. And, she, and he sleeps with her. She's married to somebody else. And she gets pregnant. And David's in a right mess now. So what does he do? He does exactly the same as Adam does that many of us do. We try and cover up. I'm going to just not take responsibility for it. And the way he does it, he does two things. First of all, he gets this woman's husband's back, Uriah the Hittite, back from the front line and says, right, go and see your wife, hoping that he's going, to, he's going to sleep with her so that this baby will look like it's his. And he refuses to do it. So David has another go. This time he gets him, tries to get him drunk. Go and sleep with your wife. And he refuses to do it because he knows he should be at war. So David has to go plan B. Plan B is he sends Uriah back to the front line and says to the commander, stick him where the fighting is most fierce, which is what he does, and Uriah the Hittite is murdered on the front line. So David goes from king to adulterer to murderer. And David marries Bathsheba, brings him into the palace, and lives in complete denial of what he has done until Nathan the prophet shows up and tells David a story and tells David like a, a kind of parallel story about what David has done, but in a kind of another way. And David's listening to this story, and he gets so angry about this story. Like, who is this guy? Tell me who he is so I can find him. And Nathan looks at him and goes, you're the one. And it's like suddenly the reality of every choice he has just made crashes in on David. Sometimes God does that, right? Suddenly it's like the reality of where I have just been and what I have just done, and I've tried to pretend to myself. I've even lied to myself. And suddenly it's like, it, suddenly God like just opens it up. And David is just a broken man. Suddenly he realizes And Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance where he is owning up. I've done this. And this is what he says in Psalm 51. Let me read you a little bit of it. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge leadership and influence is about living a life of example. It begins by saying, I'm responsible for my choices. And it means there are moments where we have to own up before God and others and go, I messed that up. Because only when we do that do we then start to get free. We have to accept the truth, I'm responsible. We have to own up when we get it wrong. And then we have to do something We have to take a step. Now, I'm not into self-help. This is not part of my new book of 50 things to do to make your life better. You won't be able to buy that in Heathrow or anything like that. It's not part. I'm not into that. But I am into believing that we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to allow him access to our lives in order to change us and grow us. And part of leadership is learning to lead myself, and therefore part of it is owning up where I'm not right or where I'm a bit broken. Now, Interestingly, in Philippians 4, Paul talks about three areas in that passage which are critical areas of our lives. There may be others, but these are definitely in your top five or ten of areas in your life that you need to give special close attention to. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and says, pay close attention to your life. Well, this would be areas you need to pay close attention to. He talks about relationships. 
He talks about spiritual habits or prayer, and then he talks about thought life. So if leadership is about influence and leading myself, I need to give real close attention to these three. And these are all subjects we could preach a whole, a easy and whole sermon on, if not more. But I'm going to touch them very fast, and I'll make quick comments on each of them before we close. First of all, this, relationships. Who you allow into your life and surround in your life is critical when it comes to growing, and therefore the kind of life of influence you will or will not lead. Three types of people, very broadly speaking. First of all, people who do you harm. Secondly, people who do you good. Thirdly, people who will drain you. They're not, they're not bad for you, but they will drain you. Group one, if you have people in your life who you know will drag you into a lifestyle which is inappropriate and unhelpful, your choice, your job is to limit the amount of access they have to your life. And you're responsible and I'm responsible because they will drag you into a lifestyle you know is away from God's purposes. So if there are people calling you, causing you to do bad things, then step away. Step away from the person, to use a police phrase, okay? Groups two and three. If there are people who do you good, friends, you need to cultivate those friendships. If you don't have them, you need to find them. You need to find them. We all want people to find us, but actually you need to step towards them. Group three, you need people in your life that you are serving because they help you grow as well, and God calls you to serve people. And you need to balance out two and three. And you have to choose. And if you look at that and you're going to go, oh, it's totally out of whack in my life, then you have to do something. Own up. Accept responsibility and then make some changes. Okay, that's relationships. We could talk loads more. If there's conflict in your life, you need to do everything you can to resolve it on your part. And if there's unforgiveness, as difficult as it is, you need to make steps towards forgiveness because you get free when you forgive the other person. We keep people in unforgiveness because we think we're keeping them captive. Actually, we're the ones captive. Relationships. Secondly, this. He talks about prayer life. Andrew's going to talk more about this next week. Spiritual habits. Reading the Bible, praying. Now, occasionally you will meet Christians who will tell you that they find this really easy. That is not my experience, okay? And that's not my experience of most Christians. They find this tough. Now, one comment I want to make on it. The reason I think we find it tough, at least sometimes, is because we get this subject back to front and upside down in our thinking. We often think of prayer and reading our Bible and spiritual habits as a way of bringing something to God, like making an offering to Him. And although we would say we don't believe this, okay, in in effect, often we do somewhere in our subconscious, we do believe this, that basically, if I pray enough and read my Bible, I'm basically bringing an offering, and that placates God because he's a bit upset with me, and if I do it enough, he'll be happy with me and good to me, and therefore I'm kind of like getting his favor. The the flip of that is that if I'm not reading my Bible or praying, therefore he's not going to be happy with me, therefore he's not going to be favorable towards me, and maybe he doesn't love me anymore. In other words, I'm treating spiritual habits as a way of winning and earning something from God. I win his love because I performed really well. We're making our relationship with him completely performance-related. We don't need to do that. Bible reading and praying was never for his benefit. It's always for ours. He's always the giver. I'm always the receiver. It's nothing to do with my performance because it's all to do with Jesus' performance. And my access to him is simply because he's performed perfectly already. So that he's completely sufficient for me. Therefore, spiritual habits are nothing about placating him. It's all about receiving from him. Think of it. Imagine I had a table on the platform. Imagine we all brought food with us today. 
And our praying and our worshipping and our singing, it's like we're bringing food and we're putting it on the table and hopefully if we put enough food on the table, God will be okay with us and therefore he'll be favourable towards me. And that's kind of how we treat it. But actually, reading the Bible and praying is not like that. The, the table, we don't bring anything to the table. We come totally empty-handed, and yet you open up your Bible and you pray, and you realize the table has been laid for you. And reading the Bible and praying scores no points whatsoever with him. All it does is it's a way of me coming to him and him feeding me again and again, because I need feeding, and I need directing, and I need changing, and I need to be reminded who I am and who I'm not. And that's what happens when I come to the table. And if I don't read the Bible, it's not that he doesn't love me anymore. It's just that I am limiting how much he can get hold of me and therefore how much I grow and therefore whether I will influence anyone. That's what it is. And we get it all upside down. Lastly, this, okay? Thought life. He says, think carefully whatever is is beautiful and good, noble, right, whatever is pure. Think about such things. Really quickly, there is an unavoidable, inevitable dynamic that happens, spiritual dynamic. What we allow in will come out. What we sow, we will reap. Therefore, what we think about, Romans 12 says, will affect whether we grow and change and therefore whether we can influence anybody. So what we allow into our lives is a critical choice we have to make. So, if ever there was a day when we need to get clear on this, surely it is today. Now, let me just say, I don't have a problem with TV or social media, but can I just say, if our minds are swamped and flooded by that, if that is all we ever allow in, that's all we ever think about, all we ever watch, all we ever do, that will inevitably affect the kind of people we grow into because what you allow in will come out. Jesus says then in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, our minds, sorry, our eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If we allow unhealthy things, unhelpful things in, it will immediately, inevitably affect who we become. If you are sitting watching internet pornography, it is undeniable that that will absolutely affect the kind of person you grow into. It doesn't lead you into any kind of freedom. It doesn't even fulfill you or satisfy you, even though they're pushing it like it does. It simply leads you into more and more slavery. And if that's where you are, guess what you have to do? You have to go, I'm responsible for my life. I've got to own up, and then I've got to take some steps because I really want to grow into the person God called me to grow into. Guess whose job it is to do that? Mine, yours. No one else will do it for you. Leadership begins with me, and it begins by taking responsibility for my life, for owning up to where I am, and taking steps Real steps, doing something about it. Let's stand together. The band can come up, and we're going to pray. Now, I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer. But if you know God's spoken to you, if you just feel like, oh, there's one or two areas, I just know I need to grow in it. I want to go. There's something wrong. There's something off or something sinful. And you think, I want to take a step. I want to make a choice. Then I want to just, just pray for you, and I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you the courage to make the choice. So let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it's nothing about us, but it's all about your ability to change lives. We thank you that you say in Isaiah that the word never comes back empty. So we're praying, God, that your word, not my words, but your word would not come back empty. 
And for many of us in this room, that we sense, God, there's more, or we need to get some change, or we need to own up about something, God, give us the courage to make the step and to talk to people and pray it out. And Lord, we ask you for your help to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.